Amen. All right, let's turn once again back to Romans 11, which we just finished reading for our scripture reading this morning. And I want to begin a series entitled The Depth of Divine Wisdom. The Depth of Divine Wisdom. Uh, Really one of the key verses, it's difficult in this particular chapter to point to just one single verse. There is so much packed into Romans 11 as is packed in all of uh, the Apostle Paul's letters. Uh, but the one that has really struck me and has really been the, uh, the emphasis and the focus of my own study of Romans 11 uh, is verse 33. And you'll notice that Paul uses phrases and he uses terminology in, a, in an attempt to really have us grasp exactly the God we're dealing with. Now we know there are mysteries about God that we do not fully understand. Uh, There are mysteries that have been left uh, that we just simply are not able to comprehend them yet. But Paul uses words that we, I think, can understand to at least get an idea of how deep and how wide, how, how lasting these riches of Almighty God are. You'll notice that verse again says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul uses an exclamation point there to indicate emphasis. It's emphatic that he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So we see the word depth. We see the word riches. We see his unsearchableness, if you will. We see his judgments, and we see that his ways are past finding out. Uh, Briefly, we can see this and understand that depth gives us an idea that uh, there is really not a bottom to his riches. There is not a place where we we can get deep enough to find just how glorious the riches of God really truly are. It is something that cannot be measured. Paul wrote similar language in the book of Ephesians when he talked about the width and the depth and the breadth of the love of God. It is something that we, we just in our humanity have a very difficult time comprehending. But you'll notice that not only is this depth of his riches, but the riches are of his wisdom and knowledge. Uh, When we talk about wisdom, we're talking about that which is not the same as intellectual. It's not the same as my my understanding of a concept. It It is wisdom. It is the ability and understanding to see something and to make the proper choice. Of course, God is almighty. He is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's unchangeable. But we see that Paul writes about the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. This judgment, we often see this and we think about judgment as the wrath of God. We think about final judgment. We think about end times. We think about eschatology. And there is a sense where that's the case. Because, But the word judgments here is really a reference to his decrees or his plans or his purposes. So his purposes, his plans, his decrees, uh, it is impossible for us to fully comprehend all that he is doing. Uh, That is what makes part of living life difficult. Uh, We understand promises like Romans 8, that he's working all things together for good for those who love God. Well, all of life doesn't seem good. All of life doesn't seem bright and optimistic. 
Sometimes life is downright dark. Sometimes life as a Christian seems as if it's getting darker and we find ourselves as believers saying, where exactly is the light? Because I'm struggling to see it myself. But yet, this is a verse that doesn't give us bring us to hopelessness. It's a verse that brings us complete comfort and complete hope because we know that what he's working out is according to his plan. Now, you and I want to question God. We often want to know why, God, are you allowing these things to happen? And there is so much packed in Romans 11, and there are a lot of things we need to consider. And really this morning is primarily going to be just an introduction to the subjects in which Paul is dealing with. Now, this comes at the tail end of a lot of Scripture. Paul, this is part of the conclusion. When you are reading through Scripture, or maybe you hear a sermon, uh, you may or may not know this, but most preachers, when they're standing preaching, if they're not doing it without notes, or they're doing it with notes, they at least have an outline in their mind. They have concepts in their mind, and they're, they have headings, and they're thinking about verses and saying, these five verses are about this, these five verses are about this, these verses are about this. Really, verse 33 marks what is the conclusion, right? It's the conclusion of all that Paul has said. So if we were to just read verses 33 through 36, we certainly could preach a sermon just on those verses. But as you know, we believe that proper biblical interpretation requires exposition, which means I need to look around the context. I need to understand what is it that Paul was talking about that made him say, oh, the depth, right? Why did he say that? Now, we could say that today without even hearing a message, right? We could all say, oh, the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. His ways are, are past finding out. We all have that in our heart if we're believers today. But Paul had an intended subject that he was dealing with. And this intended subject may not seem like something that we fully understand. And by the way, the subject of Romans 11 is probably one of the mis most misunderstood and misconstrued portions of what God is doing with regard of the nation of Israel. Now, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is in church, you have a position, you may not be able to completely speak it, on what God is doing with Israel. And you will say one of two things. You'll either say, maybe God is totally done with Israel, and God has no other purpose for them, and that their purpose came and went, and now they're gone. Or you might say that God still has a purpose with Israel, and he is still working out a plan, even though it appears in many ways that God has blinded them. You're really usually in one of those two. Now, there are some hybrid teachings out there that kind of mix both. There's a little bit of a combination of each one. I do believe that Paul's position starting off this chapter is that God is not done with Israel. And Paul uses an extremely interesting illustration himself. He uses himself as the illustration because he is a Jew. And the question is, has God cast off Israel or his people forever? And Paul answers in the strongest language. And by the way, when you see this phrase, and depending on your translation, it may not use it exactly the same way, but mine is God forbid. That is the strongest rejection of something that's being said. 
Clearly, Romans, Romans 11.1, 1, Paul says God is clearly not done with Israel. Now let me explain to you why he's not done with Israel. And then let me explain to you how God's not only done with Israel, but what he's doing with Israel and has done with Israel and what he will do with Israel has to do with the Gentiles. And that because of his working with Israel, blinding them, it has opened up an avenue to the Gentiles to be gloriously saved by his redeeming grace. If it were not for Israel, you and I would not understand God's grace. We would not even see the way of salvation. God had a purpose for Israel. God continues to have a purpose for Israel. Now again, this is where different viewpoints will go in different directions. Again, I said you're really in one of those two, but each one of those two particular ways also has a bunch of subplots running underneath it. And those subplots lead all different directions. So what we're going to do is we're going to stay true to the text. We're simply going to allow the text to tell us what God is doing with Israel and how what God has done with Israel has opened up the way to the Gentiles. So Paul, if you recall, now we preached through Romans. It's been, I think, two years ago now. Uh, So this is kind of a return to what we worked through the entire book of Romans. But throughout the book of Romans, Paul has, has spoken often about the calling of the Gentiles. And of course, throughout the book of Romans, we see the fulfillment of many of the Old Testament prophecies where Paul says that what the Jews did with the gospel, there is a perverseness in it. There is a depravity being seen in it. They they were given the first oracles, but yet they rejected them and they pushed the gospel away. It's not unlike what we're studying in Matthew at, at our, our next service, is that, that here's the parables and there's understandings and people that can't hear, people that can't see. So there are references made to this blinding of Israel. Now again, some would be in the camp that says it's not fair for God to blind anyone. And I mentioned to you this last week, there are also people that say it was fair for God to blind Israel, but it's not fair for God to blind a Gentile. It's not fair for God to blind the eyes of someone. God does what he wants when he wants and does not seek counsel from anyone to ask, is this okay if I do this? He's not going to ask you if it's okay what he's doing in the world if that suits your fancy. He's not going to say, look, I see you're having a rough time. Would you like me to change my purposes and my decrees and my plans to make it more palatable for you to live in this world? He's just not going to do it. You see, God's already given us more than we deserve. God's already given us much more than we deserve because we deserve zero. We deserve nothing. We do not deserve to even know the way of salvation, let alone have it open to us that we would be made willing to believe these truths even though we don't fully understand all of God's decrees, all of God's plans. See, I believe in a Savior, and I don't know everything that God is doing. You see, that's what a work of grace does. So Paul proceeds in chapter 11, really, to talk talk specifically about Israel's rejection. Now, one of the main points that he shows here Again, remember, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not Paul's philosophy. This is not Paul saying, now here's what I think. A true biblical interpretation uses the Bible as its frame of reference. Paul's not 
bringing in a theologian who's popular in the day and saying, okay, let's refer to a popular theologian and get his opinion on this. No, this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And he says, this is exactly what God is doing with Israel and what he's done because of their rejection. You see, Bible exposition, if you will just follow verse by verse, line by line, you will find out God does give you the answers to what he's doing. Now, there's some depth to it that we may not fully get it. Like the question, why did he choose Israel in the first place? It's questions that Paul does deal with. So we're going to take this in a line by line. Again, every time we start some kind of a new series, I warn us about jumping too far ahead because we want to know. I want to know what he means in verse 11. Well, how about we get through verses 1 and 2, and then when we get to verse 11, we'll talk about what happens there. See, we always want to jump one step ahead. But what Paul is doing here is he does make a very clear declaration. He does say that the rejection of Israel is not a universal rejection. In other words, he says this is not every single Jew being rejected. But we also know, biblically speaking, that not every single Jew is going to be saved just because they are of the nation of Israel. So you have two, you have two opposing things you have to consider. Their rejection is not universal, but their universal salvation is also not promised. So there are people that do hold to the they hold to this doctrine, I'm not going to point out people today per se, that hold to the doctrine that ultimately all of Israel and every Jew will be saved. There are people that actually have that doctrine. They hold to that, that at the end, the salvation of the Jews is really universal and God was just using these things as an example. No, he clearly says that there is a rejection and a rejection of some of Israel, but that there's a promise that there will be a remnant. There will be some now, again, this is what makes our human nature cringe because we don't think God has the right to determine who the some are who will understand and those who won't understand are because we think God doesn't deal fairly with man. God always does that which is right. So that's one of the main things we'll understand. Paul's going to use passages from the Old Testament to prove that it was not a universal rejection of the Jews. But then he's also going to point out that the design and purposes of God in casting them off, at least for a time, is an exhortation to the Gentiles to never use that as a means of insulting the Jews. In other words, don't look at their casting off and insult them for that. See, we have a tendency that if we believe someone's been cast off, that that should be a point of us to insult them and say, look what God did to them. They deserve that. Not only should that not be the case for the Jews, but that should not be against anyone. We should not glory in anybody being cast away. I mean, if you take some kind of sick, twisted fulfillment that somebody's cast into hell or that somebody's spending an eternity separated from God, uh, your faith is flawed deeply. There's nobody we should take, take uh, arrogance in and say, boy, they got what they deserved. Because you should have been cast off right along with them. I should have been cast off along with them. What makes me think that I shouldn't, don't deserve the same eternal fate? So Paul says their rejection is not universal. But he also says, Gentiles, remember this, don't use their casting away by God as a means of your own pride. And don't use it as a means 
of your own to use it to insult them. There really is a practical application. Learn to be humble. We teach, try to teach our children from a very young age to be humble and kind, and yet how often as an adult do we not even, we're not humble and kind ourselves. I mean, downright, sometimes theology gets downright ugly between people. I mean, it just gets to the point where we're not even talking to people with humility. Uh, we're just talking louder so that they don't have a room, room to speak. Every time you talk about the things of God, it should be done with humility, not with some sense of pride and arrogance. Humility will prevent us from insulting someone else, and certainly we should not insult the Jews. Learn to be humble, be cautious. Because what Paul teaches us in Romans 11 is that what he's done to the Jews was meant to be a lesson to the Gentiles. What you saw God do with Israel, be cautious. Use it as an example of what you should be aware of as well. Now in Romans 11, we read through this. Some of you may have picked up on these various aspects of this. But Paul does foretell the conversion of Jews coming at a later day. He does say there is coming a time when there will be an opening of the eyes and that blindness that has been cast upon the Jews to some will be lifted. I've had people ask me the question straight out, why, does, why do the Jews, why does Israel not see Christ? And you know what the biblical answer is? Because he's blinded them. You say, why can't they see? What does the Bible say about it? As a nation, they've been blinded. As a nation, as a people, they're not seeing Christ as the Messiah. Well, that's unfair. Israel rejected Christ as the Messiah. All the prophecies said, here he comes. He'll know him when you see him. The book of Hebrews spells out all the things, how here Christ is the perfect fulfillment of those, of those prophecies. Here is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, which is the pinnacle where it clearly says Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and yet the Jews said, no, uh, we reject him. But Paul does foretell the conversion of the Jews and some of the Jews in the later day. And it will be what we'll refer to for now as a, a general conversion, right? We'll talk about that. We'll get more specific as we get to those verses. But that most importantly, this rejection is not final, right? This rejection that's happened right now is not a final casting away everybody who is of Israel away. It's not final. Now, what this Romans 11 really does is it dissolves a lot of issues that happen between the Jews and the Gentiles. What's going to take place? Now, sadly, we get a lot of our theology from non-biblical sources. A non-biblical source can be a Christian book, by the way. It can be based on the Bible, but you understand that the greatest answer for what God is doing is in the Scriptures, not in a third-party book. Now, third-party books are helpful. Commentaries are helpful. I use them every single week. I use them every single day. I refer to commentaries, not against commentaries at all. But my theology should be based on Scripture. My theology should be based on what does the Bible say, not what did this man say about that. Because I could give you a list of ten men, pastors, theologians, who were all well-respected men, give you a passage of Scripture. I'm going to tell you, you're going to get ten different perspectives on what that passage is about. 
It's the same way. You can, you can bring in 10 pastors and say, all right, for 10 consecutive weeks, we're going to have a pastor preach on Romans 11. There are going to be some nuances and some differences in the way that that passage is being presented. The most consistent way to do it is by sticking to the text. And what, does, what is Paul saying that God is doing? So this resolves what we refer to as what's going to happen. Now, what does Paul attribute this to? Well, Romans 11.33 told us he attributed it to the unsearchable wisdom and knowledge of God. What Paul is doing is he starts the chapter with an objection that he knew was coming. Some are going to reject and object to what he's getting ready to say. Have you ever been having a conversation with someone and you know before you get the last word out, they're getting ready to say something contrary? You know they're on the opposing side. Paul anticipates you are going to object and here's what you're going to object to and I'm going to answer that before you even say it. He's going to deal with not only the calling of the Gentiles, but also the unbelief of the Jews. Again, when Paul answers, God forbid. Paul introduces the reality that he is the great example that if God is going to cast off every Jew, then he's cast me off. So then we say, well, that means God chose to open the eyes of at least a single Jew, the Apostle Paul. Now again, that's where some people's theology will start going different ways. Some will say God chose, Paul chose to open his own eyes. Others will say, no, God opened his eyes. Of course, our position here is that God opened his eyes. That's our consistent position, that God opened his eyes, made him willing to believe. Now again, you may say that's not my position, but that's the position our church takes. We're, we are saying it's an act of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And because of that, Paul says, if the, if the universal rejection of the Jews is in fact the case, then why did God open my eyes? And why do I stand here before you today writing and penning this letter knowing very good and well that at one time I was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, Jew of the Jews, and an hater of those that were of that way of Christianity? Only a remarkable act and work of God could have changed Paul's perspective on what had taken place. That's why Paul, Paul makes reference to being an Israelite. He makes reference to being a Jew. He makes reference, he says in verse 1, I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Folks, this would be like a person saying, I'm, I'm as Jew as Jews come. It'd be like us saying, I'm as American as Americans come. My lineage goes way back. And if the objection you're getting ready to raise, he says, no, God hasn't cast away all of his people because I'm one of them. And here I stand. Again, now if we think that God doesn't have a right to choose who opens the, he opens the eyes of and who he keeps the eyes shut, what are we going to do with Paul? So he answers by God forbid. This is a way to detest a thought. Paul is sickened by the reality that they would think that he's cast off the Jews 
finally and entirely. He uses himself as an example. He was a Jew. He was called a Jew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He stood, gave approval of the stoning of Stephen, held the cloak, was completely in support of the stoning of Stephen. And yet he says, I am a living proof, I'm a living example that God has not cast off everybody who's a Jew because I stand before you redeemed. You have no other answer for that, right? That's one proof right there. Even if he's the only one, which he's not, that would not be the case that God has cast away every Jew and that every Jew is going to be in hell someday. Because we know there's at least one. You say, well, that's not very comforting. There's the reality of who's been God's counselor. God had every right to cast every one of you, including myself, off. And you say, no, I have too many good things in my life. They are filthy rags before a holy God. You say, oh, but my intents and my motives are pure. No, they're not because you're still, you still have an old sin nature in you. It's only by God's grace that we can even do anything that's worthy. And it's only worthy because of Christ. So what is Paul teaching? Throughout Romans 11, it's unmistakable that Paul is teaching that God had shown, again, this might be a term that might rub you the wrong way, but God had shown what we can refer to as distinguishing grace. He distinguishes between some and others he doesn't. There were some, he uses the word, foreknown. Again, another word that you, you throw that out there and it's like throwing a, it's like throwing a firecracker out in front of people. Everybody, everybody jumps on it and say, oh, foreknowledge, I know what that is. And everybody, and you're going to split on, you're going to split on two camps just on that word. You're going to have the opinion that God, that man, God knew who would choose him for themselves. That's one camp. Or you're going to jump on the camp that says God foreknew and he foreknew and those he foreknew, he chose. Again, we're on the left-hand side. Those whom God foreknew, he chose. It wasn't just he knew who would choose, for, choose them for himself or that they would choose God. We believe that salvation is an act of God. So there were some that were chosen. There were some that, of course, were foreknown before the foundation of the world, which we've learned that from the many, many uh, sermons and the many, many teachings throughout Scripture. But he talks about them not being totally cast off. But then notice what he does in verse 2. He answers the objection. He asks the question in verse 1, Hath God cast away his people? God forbid. He used himself as an illustration. And then he gives the answer. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Clearly, he illustrates the present case of the Jews by observing that he has not fully done this. Now notice where he points us to. He uses himself as an example in verse 1 of a person who's not been cast off. And then he uses a biblical story of Elias or Elijah. And he asks an interesting question. Again, my translation uses the Old English word what? W-O-T. It's a word you have never used in your lifetime. But he's He's driving home the point. Do you not know what the Scripture says about Elijah? 
Now again, if you're talking to a Pharisee, who was the, they were the quote-unquote theologians of the day, they knew all about Elijah. They knew all about Abraham. They knew all about Moses. They knew about Elisha. As a matter of fact, I would say the Pharisees' Bible knowledge is probably was better than anybody in this room, including me. So that hurts. It's the truth. But they didn't know God. They didn't know the God of Scriptures. But he says, do you know the story of Elijah? And he gives a little preview as to what was going on with Elijah. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel. We won't get all this today. Saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars and I am left alone and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I am amazed. You should be amazed that the God of all the universe answered Elijah's question. Now, if that does not strike you, that the God who created it all actually answered anybody, who is man that you are mindful of him? The fact God even pays attention to us ought to put us prostrate on the floor and saying, God, I can't do anything but worship you. The fact he actually even hears you Yeah, we've got this silliness going around in the world that says we can just approach God like he's our friend in the sky, the big man upstairs. No. But the fact that Elijah, going through what he was dealing with, and we'll talk more about that next week, he asks God a question, he thinks something, and God says, I want you to know something, Elijah. You are not alone. Because there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Why did those 7,000 not bow the knee to Baal? Well, it shows us that God had opened their eyes as well, that he was not alone. He was not by himself. He wants them to see how it was with Elijah and how it applies to today. Elijah, you read that, that text, and we'll look at that next week. He complained of their apostasy. He complained of their cruelty. And he got to the point where he said, I must be the only one standing for truth. And by the way, we all get that way. You think you're the only one standing for faith in your family. You think you're the only one in your employment, place where you work. You think I'm the only one that has anything of God. And I'm going to assure you, you're not the only one. Just like Paul's not the only Jew that God had not cast off. The myriads of people who have been saved by God's sovereign distinguishing grace, I think, is going to amaze us. But we cannot get beyond the reality. We think God is being unfair, that he would choose some and not others. And it bothers our humanity to the very core, because at the heart of it, we think God doesn't have a right to choose. God has a right to do whatever he wants to do. And he always does what's right. Even if I look at it and I say, well, that's not the way I would have done it. I've said this many times, be thankful that it doesn't go the way you want it done because it would be a train wreck. Sorry, that's a really bad theological term, but that's what it is. When we think I could do this better, look, I don't want any of you being responsible for the decrees and plans of Almighty God, and you don't want me being responsible for it. I don't want any human being counseling God, telling God this is what you must do next. 
You know, all through the book of Job, we understand that Job, he questioned what God was doing. He didn't fully understand everything that was happening. But my favorite verse in the entire part of Job is when he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And yet he had no idea about a cross. He had no idea about Jesus dying on a cross. He said, I know my Redeemer liveth. And he said, I have the same promise. I'm going to live again as well. Now you tell me how Job figured all that out. Did he run down to the local seminary and pull it off the bookshelf? Did he take his copy of the New Testament? Oh, wait a minute. Job didn't have a New Testament. He couldn't couldn't go turn to the book of Romans and say, let me see, I'm really, this, this thing that God's doing with me, maybe I can find some comfort in the book of Romans. He didn't have the book of Romans. Folks, we have more. We have more than Job had. We have more enlightenment. We have the completed copy of the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation. And yet, do you know that in our churches today, there is more of a movement away from the Bible than there's ever been before. There are churches you could go to today, you will never see a Scripture, you will never open a Bible, and you'll leave there thinking you went to church. No, you went there to be entertained. And you'll leave thinking, I have been so encouraged, and yet the Word of God was never preached. People are buying it hook, line, and sinker because they believe, you know what? God has changed. God hasn't changed. God's not going to change. And yet, we're trying to change the narrative. We'll look more at Paul and his dealing with Elijah next week. So really, the content of this, I'm going to kind of summarize this and we'll be through. The content of Romans 11, if you could put this in some summary statements, might be Paul rebukes the reviling of the Jews by the Gentiles. That's the first part of it. And shows that the present blinding of the Jews demonstrates the depth of divine wisdom. In other words, what God is doing with the blinding of the Jews actually illustrates what Romans 11.33 says. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge. Because humanly speaking, you're not going to be able to come up with a human solution as to why he blinded them. Unless you completely believe that God's will depends on what man does with it. Because then you're going to come to the conclusion to say, well, Israel, every one of them is blinded because they chose to blind themselves. We gave you the illustration over the last week about Pharaoh. Yes, Pharaoh blinded his own heart, but he was also hardened. His heart was hardened by God. You cannot dispute that. He hardened his own heart and God hardened his heart. Again, we can get in the order and say, well, he hardened his heart. Uh, then God did that because of what he did. Listen, man, God is not dependent upon what man does. It's a hard concept. But the Gentiles, second real lesson is the Gentiles should not despise the Jews, but rather remember they are saved by God's free grace as the elect of God and Israel are. So if you're a Gentile and you have received this glorious free grace of God, don't despise the Jews, but remember that those who are saved who are Jews are just as saved as you are. 
so that when you get to glory one day, you're going to see Jews and Gentiles in heaven. And it's not going to be the Jews over here in this part of heaven, and that's a lesser part over here. And here are the Gentiles over there because you're so much better, you're going to be over here. It'll be one. It'll be one. This, this divisiveness between, well, yeah, you're, you're one of them. No, he said they're one in Christ. Paul writes about being one in Christ all through his letters. And a lot of that has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles. So I'll introduce this for next week. But one of the most controversial subdivisions of our own theology and theology in general between churches is what I mentioned at the opening is eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times, or we may refer to it in the more formal way as the doctrine of last things. It deals with future prophecies found in the Old and the New Testaments. It has been noted by people much smarter than I am and probably much more uh, astute at the word that over two-thirds of the doctrinal text in the New Testament emphasize eschatology in some way or latter times or end, thing, end times. The church is being more and more divided on eschatology than it's ever been before. To where if you say this, I can't even talk to you. If you believe this, you're not even a brother in Christ. And I'm telling you, and I'm, I'm stating as God is my witness, there are things that you are holding so dogmatically to about what you think is going to happen in the end, and you really don't know. And we can follow Scripture and we can say, this is the conclusion I'm drawing. But if you think you've got God's plan all figured out, and you can put it on a calendar and you can say, here's when this is going to happen, here's when this is going to happen, here's when this is going to happen, and say, here's how it's all going to go down. You're as bad as the guy who said on December 7th, 1988, Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus Christ didn't come back. And he said, oh, my calculations were wrong. Let's try again, 1990. 1990 came, Jesus Christ didn't come back again. Well, I must have really misread something. No, because you don't know. But he said everything lined up. Jesus should have come right then. Figure out the mystery of when Jesus Christ himself says, only the Father knows when I'm coming. Now, we can go down the path of, well, that's in his humanity. What did Jesus know? And then there's a the controversy. Was Jesus actually omniscient when he was in bodily form? I'm just telling you, Scripture says only the Father knows. Or we're convinced, I know what heaven's going to look like. How do you know? Paul went into the third heaven. He wasn't allowed to tell you what he saw. Oh, I just believe the book about the little boy that died and went to heaven. That's what heaven is. In one of the books, he saw a rainbow unicorn. Again, I don't see it scripturally. But it had to be authentic. Look, your Bible's authentic. There are mysteries you don't know the answer to. Eschatology is one of those. We'll talk about this a little bit over as we go. The church in our day, we have competing eschatology camps. We have, and you guys, some of, some of you folks know these terms. Some of you may not know these terms. We have postmillennialism. We have premillennialism. We have amillennialism. We have preterism. We have partial preterism. We have dispensationalism. And that's just the start. There are so many camps now 
And you'd be surprised how many people would have a, a, a differing opinion. But books on eschatology, and I've said this and I still stand on this today, books on eschatology, movies on eschatology, such as the Left Behind series, have done absolutely nothing but created confusion and propagated a great doctrinal error. If that offends you, I'm sorry. But that's going to cause a lot of problems. And yet, those camps, they sweep through the market, they, they sweep through the fiction markets, they, they become bestsellers, and people say, here's what I believe about God. I was having a conversation with a, uh, a couple recently here on Wednesday night, and we were talking about how Christians have even gotten their theology from a book called The Shack. I know it's kind of old now, but if your theology is based on The Shack, you don't know what you're reading. There's no truth there. And yet Christians are buying, they were buying it, they were bringing it into their pastor and saying, have you read this? And I said, no. Are you going to read it? No. Because I know the premise of it. And I try to say it. I know sometimes I come across, my tone comes across very harsh, but I said something like this because it's garbage. That's not who God is. And yet, that's their Sunday school curriculum. Let's go through the shack. We're not going to have a shack Bible study. We're not going to have left behind Bible study. Now, we'll, we'll go to the Bible, but we're not going to have a Bible study on those two things. Those won't be in the church library at some point when we get all that together either. But I want you to think about this. So what Paul really does in chapter 11 is this is really the most complete teaching on the future of the nation of Israel. It's not a passage that's often turned to. People don't think about Romans 11 as being really a high watermark between what God's doing with Israel and how he deals with the Gentiles. But that's the approach we're taking. That's the direction that we're going, and we'll allow the scriptures uh, to do that. But I will say this, that a lot of what we dispute about, about the end times has to do specifically with what you think God is doing with Israel. It really is, it's the hinge on which the door swings on. What is God doing with Israel usually will determine what camp you're in and what he's doing with the Gentiles. All right, let's go ahead and stand. For sake of time, I've gone longer than I wanted to. Let's just conclude in prayer this morning. Normally we would have a closing hymn, um, but let's just close in prayer today. We invite you, of course, to our, our fellowship here in between.